What's it like to be to come to Memphis and be so popular? Um, it's you know it's strange. <laughs> it's, you know, on one level, it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, people to have people appreciate what you did, to have people um, thanking you for helping them in their careers or getting their music out or whatever. I mean, it's hard. I mean, that's wonderful. Um, it's overwhelming. Uh, and sometimes it's just sort of like, um, because radio is so personal and so private that all of a sudden it becomes so public that it's just sort of, it's, it's just hard sometimes for me to get my head around and to deal with it. It's, um, it, it's better than the alternative where you work at something 13 years and no one knows what you've done and they don't care. Don't get me true, wrong. True. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's overwhelming. It's uh, gratifying. It's, um, and it makes me realize how important it is to find a way to get the artists out to the public so that people can hear them. Mm -hmm. And that there are so few opportunities. And that's one of the things that XM and Sirius were so wonderful about. It's an open doors for musicians and, and fans that could hear it everywhere all the time. That um, So it just reinforced why, yeah, it was a job, but in some ways it ended up almost becoming a calling. Was there a time when you realized that you had this effect? Or, or you realized that there was well, such I didn't an impact? Realize, when, when I got hired, I thought, well, these guys have hired me. I'll, I'm sure I'll, this thing will last a year and we'll be gone. Really? I mean, it was just going to be a startup and they're going to spend a bunch of money the first year and then it'll just collapse on themselves. Part of it was, who thought you were going to pay for radio? Right. I mean, that was... I mean, I mean, it wasn't until someone came up to me and said, hey, dude, they're paying for water. If they're going to pay for water, maybe they will pay for radio. And I went, man, that's possible. Yeah, I guess it was two or three years in when we finally started, when they finally started to get it to a number level that um, there was enough people listening that it started to have an impact. And so that the first year I came to Memphis, Nobody knew what we were or who we were. And it was like, what are you talking about? You know, by the third year, though, once the numbers started to come up for the company, um, people started coming up and saying, hey, I listen all the time. I love the idea that there's a 24-hour blues channel. Um, all of a sudden, um, we were the company was dealing with uh, paying rights, digital rights to musicians and all of a sudden feedback was coming back from musicians that I just got a check for $3,000 for the last quarter. The biggest check I ever saw before was 75 cents. Um, and when an artist is making 30 or $35,000 a year, uh, nine or $10,000 over a year is a 25% increase of their income doing nothing. I mean, Right. They have to make music, but they didn't have to do anything more. They didn't have to go out on the road 25% more. They didn't. So then that feedback started coming in. And with that, it became clear to me that, wow, this is really quite special. And it's got the potential to make a huge difference 
in this little pond that's known as the blues compared to what the giant pond of music, the ocean of music. <laughs> so I'm talking to Bill Wax, who is now retired, but you're doing a radio show called um, Roots, Roots and, and Fruits. Fruits on Saturdays Yeah, that you can get off the internet. Tell me when you fell in love with radio. Well, in a lot of ways, radio saved my life. Ah, uh, my relationship with my with my father was at best troubled and at worst and at worst much more than that. Radio was the one place where I could go into my room, close the door, and leave all and get all that behind me. And so, at the age of eight, nine, ten, somewhere in there, um, it was my escape. And I listened all the time. What did you listen to? What kind of things were you listening well, to? Well, you know, in those days, now we're talking about the 50s into the 60s, the playlists were much more diverse. So what was called pop or rock would play a little bit of soul, would play a little bit of rock and roll. You might even hear some country western. You I mean, that is some easy listening. So those were the stations I started listening to. By the time I was 10 or 11... I had discovered that there were three black radio stations in Washington, D.C. that played pretty much exclusively black music. And for whatever reason, that spoke to me, to my deepest soul. Um, the vocals, the music, the whole thing just sort of resonated with me. So that's what I then started focusing on. I, mean, I still listened to the other stations. And in those days, we had cars where you punch buttons right. from station to station. And so... I would literally get in a car and a song was playing that I liked. I would listen to the end of the song. As soon as that song was over, of course, I knew all the music. And from the first note, I knew what the next song was going to be. It was a song I didn't particularly like. Boom, I was hitting the next button to find a song that I did like. Or at least playing something that I didn't know yet that I that sounded interesting. So I would just immediately just popping up and down that dial on those buttons. It was much more difficult at home with your little transistor radio because it was a lot harder to tune in from station to station. But on in a car, it was heaven to me because you had six buttons. I could get to six different stations at any time. <laughs> but there's loving the music, which is one thing. But you obviously fell in love with more than just the music, but the idea of radio. Yeah, and I think part of that is that because... It's so much about your imagination. Um, here, here's a good example of that for me. The radio show that I've done on and off for a number of years in Washington is on a station that's pretty much African-American. So uh, growing up in Washington, D.C., I was obviously influenced by African-American culture. It was a majority population. And I picked up certain idioms and whatever else because I loved the music and whatever so when I would, I'm on the radio at WPFW, for instance, no one knows who you are. You're just a voice. And then they put the pictures to it. And that's one of the things I loved about radio. It's about using television, just saying, well, for, first of all, I have a face for radio, not for television. So television wasn't a factor. I mean, I like television, but it just, it didn't move me the same way radio did. Mm -hmm. But second of all, once I started doing radio, I would then meet people out in the public. And initially I would meet them and they would look at me and there would be a split second of like, 
I didn't understand what it was, but they seemed confused. And then they would look at me and they would say, I didn't realize that you were white. <laughs> to me, that was the world's biggest compliment. Mm-hmm. The idea that as a white person, my, this audience thought I was African-American just based on the music I played and the way I sounded and whatever. And within the context of being on what's mostly a black station here was just wildly, was almost my dream kind of thing. I don't mean I want to appropriate anyone's culture, but it was an, I felt honored that they thought that. Eventually I got to the point when I would meet somebody and that split second come where I could recognize that they were trying, I would just say to them, I know, you thought I was black. <laughs> and they'd immediately start laughing and then that of course breaks the ice and off we go. So that, <clears throat> the idea that your imagination and the pictures you make up in your mind were so much part of radio was part of the love of it. Uh, listening to old radio shows where there were they were mysteries or horror stories or whatever, the cre- the sounds and everything, we each made our own pictures. We each whatever was scary to us, that's what it was. What's scary to me is different. What's scary to you? So what you put in your mind is different. What's what I put in my mind? The other thing is it's so personal. You don't take television into the shower with you. But people do take their radios into the shower with them. And that was really fascinating to me. So between all of that, um, and the music was always the driver, but between all of that, it seemed radio was a place that I could be comfortable and I loved doing. And then the jocks seemed so cool. <laughs> I mean, it just seemed so... I mean, some of them were so clever. And not my style, but so clever that it was just it was attractive and appealed to me immensely when did you decide that's what you wanted to do like when did you decide you wanted to be a radio well that's funny when i got to college there was a college radio station and the first about eight months i was there i did a show for them i went down and volunteered and did a show for them i eventually got thrown off that because they had a mostly white playlist and I was coming from Washington DC and going to Missouri and I was constantly bringing in soul records that I liked and was listening to and eventually the program director of the station student station went no 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 you won't you're not doing you're not playing what we want we're going to have to remove you so at that point radio didn't seem like a profession at that point I got involved with the anti-war movement and all these other things and eventually got my degree in teaching so I taught for four or five years outside of Washington, D.C. I left teaching and went back to Columbia, Missouri, which I had gone to college. I thought I was opening a movie theater. That never happened. But in the interim, a little community radio station had started up in Columbia, and I immediately started volunteering there when I got back. And within about a year, I was hired to be the program director of that radio station. Wow. And for the next 40 years, that's been my profession is radio. And so... The love started, it wasn't that I knew immediately that I was going to, I wasn't like a ham radio kid that I was going to be radio forever, but eventually once I came back to it and got an opportunity to really learn more and be part, I knew it was the right place for me. What's what's the greatest thing that you learned when you first started getting into radio? Because you you couldn't have known it all then, right? You started off... Oh, (laughs) The greatest thing I learned is how much I didn't know. <laughs> um, I, they, uh, 
the woman that was the program director when I started at the little community radio station, about a month after I, she gave me a show to do, called me in and asked me if I had done, if I was listening to my shows afterwards, I had making air checks to listen to myself. And I said, oh, no, Pat, I don't need to make air checks. I'm great. I, it's all, she goes, why don't you make an air check of your last show? So I made an air check of my next show. I come back, start listening to it. And I realized that every time I took a break, I was going, well, uh, the last song uh, you just heard uh, was by uh, Otis Redding. And uh, it's called, uh, and so once I heard that, I was horrified. And I went back to Pat and I said, I can't do this. I'm awful. You know, from I'm the greatest to I am awful. I can't do this. And she goes, look, no, 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 you're, you're going, you're, you're going too far on either of these extremes. Keep making air checks and see what happens. So once I recognized that I had this problem that I would use the word, ah, instead of just keeping my mouth shut to figure out what I was going to say next, the next show, I only said, ah, about every fourth words by the fourth or fifth show, the ahs had totally gone away. Wow. And so once I was aware of it, I could keep myself from doing it. But what it really told, taught me was is that I really didn't know a whole lot about any of this. I might have had an impression that I thought I knew all this and I was really good at it. But the reality was is that there's a lot more to learn. And that lesson has served me. And the lesson of I realized that I learn much more from mistakes than from success. Failure is a much better, for me, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, failure is a much better teacher than success. Success meant that you just kept on doing the same old, same old, because it seemed like it was right. But when you failed, if you wanted to keep on, you had to figure out, why did I fail? And how do I make sure I don't fail again? What did I learn from this failure so I don't have to repeat this? And to me, that was a huge life lesson because it served me and everything else I ever did. I mean, we fail all the time. We make mistakes all the time. It's just part of human nature. Um, and the question is, can you, get, can you step beyond that? Can you learn from them? Can you can progress from them and then become better person or better at what you're trying to do? So that was probably the single most important thing to me was the idea of, wow, there's so much more for me to learn and there's I've got so much more that I need to get to do. Can you share with me your greatest failure and what you learned from that? That's a good question. What was my greatest failure? Um, you're making this very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> How come you're not asking me the same old questions that would be easy? But then this would not be so interesting and so fascinating. I don't know uh, if it's a fair question, but... It is a fair question. Um... I would say my greatest failure it was or has been um, recognizing that people have limitations, myself included, and not to hold those limitations against people. I have a tendency to be somewhat judgmental and jump to conclusions. And so it's taken me a long, long time to realize that, you know, just because a first impression or someone made a mistake, you, you can't just say they're not worthy as a person or they don't have worth or whatever. You really have to step back and realize, okay, 
you made the mistake, the question is, do you make the mistake the second time or the third time or do you learn from it? And once I figured out that not only do I learn from mistakes, but other people are learning from them, then it enabled me to have a great more tolerance for being human, which is a pretty fair, frail condition. When you were programming music, how did that come to you? Like, how did you learn how to put together a good show? Um, you know, some of it is somewhat intuitive. But again, I had, there were certain people that had been doing it longer than me, so they gave me hints like, well, subject matter. Put together a show or a set all about cars or all about summertime or all about women or all about men or all about relationships. So that was one light bulb going on. Okay, I can put together sets about that. Then another person pointed out to me, well, how about rhythms? This trace the same rhythm so that you're trying to match up rhythms. And then I went, yeah, that works too. So there's another way of putting things together. How about um, pace? That you don't really want to go from a really slow song to a really manic song. So what you need to do is figure out is there a tune you can find that moves in between that's sort of a medium tempo. So you go from a slow tempo to a medium tempo to a fast tempo and then back to a medium tempo, then back to the slow tempo so that you sort of moving the audience that way. And then eventually a lot of it just becomes intuitive. I don't even know that I think about much of that anymore unless I'm putting together a specific subject on a, you know, it's a, anti-war show or it's a political song show or something like that but just in general doing a regular just a show of music most of it these days is just sort of intuitive i've been doing you do something for 40 years damn you hope you learn something <laughs> but but i wonder when you listen to music on your own like sorry for the 40 years that you programmed music did you always listen to music as a programmer and think, oh, how do I put this no. together? Or I listen to music as a fan. So and as a matter of fact, I do my radio. I've always done, I can't play an instrument. If I sang, I would clear a room. I can't carry a tune. So I have no musical talent that way. But I loved the music and loved what it was saying and the artists. So I, whenever, once I started doing radio, my approach was always to do it from as if I was a fan. And I realized that most of the audience is in that same place. They listen as fans. They like that kind of music, so they're fans of it, and they listen to it. And so that's how I sort of go ahead and do it. I don't try to say, oh, I'm the world's greatest expert on this, and you should listen to me. I try to put myself in that place of, I'm just anybody at home doing housework and I like this kind of music. So what would be, how would I want to hear it? And what would be my response to it? So my, the way I've always seen it, and that's when I do interviews with artists and everything, it's not like I'm trying to become their equal. What I'm really trying to do is ask questions and learn about them as any fan who would ever get the opportunity to meet one of their favorite artists, and at what would their questions be? What would they want to know from their favorite artist right. beyond certain personal things that maybe or shouldn't be our business at all, and we still get mucked up with it? But so it's always as a fan, and that's always been the way I approached it, and um, uh, it served me well. And there's another little thing in there that 
I always wanted people to learn more about the music. But it's not an academic exercise. It's mm -hmm. not like going to school. It's entertainment. The question is, how do you get education and entertainment in one and the same? I never found education very entertaining. <laughs> now, when I got older, I appreciated it. Maybe it was more entertaining. Mm -hmm. But as a kid going through school and even all the way through college, I was a crummy student. <laughs> I did the minimum that I could to get through. It was just the way I was. But once I started doing radio, I realized, well, if I put together this set where I play the original version of the song and then play this brand new record that's come out and this guy's doing a cover of this original song. So I play the original and then the cover of the song. All of a sudden people realize, oh, that's not brand new. It's from this time before. Now, then I run into the to people that listen to the show and they go, oh, I love the show. I learned so much and it's so educational. And I think to myself, well, it's not meant to be educational. I'm just trying to entertain. And then it occurred to me. But yeah, in a weird sort of way, it is educational. Because if you can find a way to show them how it's all connected or where something came from and how it developed what it is today, then as the fan side of me and the fans that are out there, I, all of a sudden it occurred to me, as a matter of fact, maybe it is educational, not in necessarily intentionally. And I'm not like saying, listen right now, this is important, you need to learn this, right. as like the school model. It was more like, hey, all of a sudden they look up and go, I didn't know that. And it's sort of, you get the information on as on the side as opposed to having smacked up against you. <laughs> was there a point where you realized that you were good at what you did? Well, you know, I'm not even sure today I always realize and here's the reason why. I, I and I'm not being self modest necessarily. I realize that I have a great deal of skills and I've been doing something for forty years. So I should be somewhat good at this. I mean I, I at least have learned a lot of lessons at it. But when I first started in radio, a little community radio station in Columbia, Missouri had a collection of the mo some of the most brilliant uh, risk takers, incredibly wonderful programmers. I mean, would try to do everything and it was intimidating to me. I just wanted to come in and play these songs and music. In the meantime, there are guys on the air, two guys come in and they're doing this talk show and one of them pretends to be Marcel Marceau and they do an interview <laughs> with Marcel Marceau. Now this is radio. Marcel Morceau is a mime. What are you doing doing an interview with a mime? But it was brilliant. I mean, and so I was incredibly intimidated by the amount of talent that was around this station. So for the longest time, I never saw myself as being like that. These guys were so imaginative and so talented. I always saw myself as sort of being sort of like a plotter. You know, plod one foot in front of the other, get this done so on and so forth. Um, I would say it was probably 10 or 15 years before I finally started to accept that, you know what, maybe I do know something about it. And I'd been a program director for radio stations long before that. And I, could, and I felt like I could help other people get better at what they were doing. I wasn't so sure how good I was. I mean, I just felt like, yeah, I have a great taste in music, so people like that. But it was only after enough different people coming up and saying, hey, I really love what you're doing, 
eventually you have to step back and go, well, maybe I do know what I'm doing and maybe I, I, I do have some idea about this thing and maybe I am pretty good. But even this day, I hear, there are people in the radio that are so clever that I, I think to myself, I'm just, that's not my skill and realize that there are other skills. The other thing is that I learned and that made a difference was that radio is about stories. People love storytellers. I mean, most of culture started as storytellers. We, we didn't have written language to begin with. Every culture had people that their job was to remember the stories from the generations before and then pass them on to the next generation. Mm -hmm. So those stories and history really were continued. Radio, to me, is all about stories. I hate Rush Limbaugh's politics, but he is a great storyteller. Now, I might hate what he has to say, but I recognize when he gets ready to do his thing and talk about the femme Nazis and this and that, he puts it in such a way that he's telling you a story. People love that. And so I realized that and realized, well, then part of my job, part of the way I can make my show better, besides just the music, is find a way to tell some of the stories around the music. And once I learned that, then it all fell in place. But radio is about ratings, right? And you had to always be aware of ratings and how many people are listening. How I never was. Oh, really? Yes, because I always worked in non-commercial community radio. Mm -hmm. Until Sirius XM hired me, I had never come close to commercial radio. I hadn't even worked for national public radio. I worked for these little radio stations, community radio stations, where you brought people in from the community, you trained them how to use the equipment, and then they did their own shows. Now, we didn't ever have enough money to buy Arbitron ratings or anything else, so we never saw those. The only way you really could measure some of your popularity is when you had a pledge drive and you had to ask your audience for money were they willing to come up with money for what you would, what you were doing? So that was sort of your measurement, that and feedback from individuals and people. So ratings to me were never, I never drove anything that I did or any time in radio. And once I got to Sirius XM, they weren't doing ratings. There were no, their goal was something entirely different. And so honestly, ratings never played a role for wow. me. Were you, did you ever become cynical about the business? Um, well, I'm cynical about the business. I'm not cynical about radio. In other words, the everything being profit-driven, it's hard not to be cynical when you see that. And you see people that spend years doing something and then the company gets sold and it gets leveraged to the to the highest degree and everybody gets blown out because you need to have something else. That makes me cynical. But about radio itself, I still think radio's magic. I'm not sure radio's gonna survive, but I still think it's magic. And even if radio doesn't survive, maybe the next gen thing is podcasts. Maybe what I, you know, I'm a dinosaur in some ways, but the reality seems to be that even though the generations under the age of maybe 40 don't have the same love of radio and didn't use radio the way I did, but they seem to be incredibly attracted to podcasts. So when I hear some people doing podcasts, I go, well, that's just an hour radio show, but mm -hmm. it's on the internet. So maybe radio goes away, 
but the skill of telling stories, the skill of entertaining, which has always been part of radio, that continues on. What, what does radio do well now? Well, I think radio's biggest thing is local, even though there's this big push, everything being national. But I don't think that that's the advantage. I think the advantage that a radio station has is I can come on and tell you things about what's happening to your neighbors, in your community, in your city, that a national broadcaster sitting a thousand miles away never can know. Mm-hmm. So the ability to be able to to be intricately involved in your local community and be part of that community, be part of the quality of life in that community, making it better to live in that community is something that I think radio should never lose. And it always, it always bothers me when I see more and more of these um, stations that just want to go on to flip a switch and take everything from satellite and have nothing local. And I think you real, I, I think eventually you're going to be the end of yourself because why do we need, why do you need to be local anything? Just find a way to deliver it on a national level and you don't need that. You're each of these little local radio stations. And I think that'd be a loss. So for me, community radio was, and that was where I got started and that's what I believed in. It wasn't what I first listened to. It didn't exist. But community radio, that's what it was so exciting about it. It's about the community. It's about people in the community talking about the things that mean what's important to them. If I'm in Washington, D.C., I cannot possibly know what's important to the people in Duluth. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, I can't know that. Only the people in Duluth can know that. So to me, community radio is a treasure. And I still do all I can to promote it in any such way. In America right now, there are these low power stations starting up, 10 to 100 watts. And a couple of them have started now in Washington. I work for a station that has 50,000 watts, but, and I still go over to the 10 and 100 watts and do workshops, go on the air, help them pitch and drives, whatever, because I love the idea of even more and more. Some of these, the little station in Tacoma Park, for instance, right? I live in Silver Spring, but there's a little station start up Tacoma Park. Its range is only a couple of three or four communities, but it's incredibly vibrant. The people that are in those communities are flocking to it because here's a voice of their concerns and what they're about and what's important to them. And they have a home to be able to do that. And to me, that's just so exciting. I, it's what we should be doing, what it's about, at least in my point of view. Does the approach that you take for the current show um, that you're doing on Saturdays, is it the same as the young man who started in radio? Is well, that- not exactly because I just know so much more. So it's much more, it, it's much more complete. Right. Um, but in a lot of ways it is. Um, I can't, you know, um, it's music that I think that I feel like if this music moves me, then there's a good chance there's a good percentage of the population that's listening and it'll move them too. It's music that I loved starting when I was seven, eight years old and still to today. And I now get a chance to go back and play it. The only difference is when I first started listening to it, it was contemporary. Now, 55 years later, it's oldies. Right. <laughs> now, it's not completely that way because I still play some contemporary music. But I sort of try to put it in as a continuum. 
as part of this continuum that started way back then and it continues on to today. Matter of fact, even the name of the show was about that. I call the show Roots and Fruits, which is based on that Willie Dixon quote where he said, the blues is the roots and everything else is the fruits. So you're talking about a continuum, starting with the deep blues, and this is where it all started, but then it became R&B, it became soul, some of it became rock and roll, some of it, and so it, be, it, 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 it there is similar to when I started, but it's sort of a bigger picture, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I know that when I was younger, I would listen to something and I would just be inst- instantly attracted to some songs. And that happened a lot more when I was younger. Now that I'm old, it doesn't happen as much. Is that how do you? Does that still happen to you a lot? I the way I the first way I would answer that question is nothing excites me more than to hear something new that I think is really cool. That and I was the same way as you were when I was younger. Boy, the first time I heard a song that I thought was a great song, that was one of the reasons why I was pushing those buttons like crazy on the radio. Because I'm looking to hear that song over and over again. And in those days, if they played it once every three or four hours, maybe you, so you really had to search to get it to come up until you could buy the 45 and then bring it home and play it forever. Right. <laughs> over and over and over. Until you wore it out and had to buy it again. So even to this day, when I can discover a new band, for instance, there's this band called Ranky Tanky. They're a group of musicians out of the South Carolina, Georgia Sea Island, uh, islands right off of South Carolina, Gullah culture and music. And they've taken all these child, a lot of childhood songs that the Gullah people sing and have turned them into these very interesting, wonderful pieces of music. The first, so uh, about six months ago, the record arrived at my house. I put it on. And I was blown away. And it all, every time that happens, I'm immediately back to being eight years old and hearing Hound Dog or whatever those songs were. Does it happen as often today? Probably not. Some of it has to do with is that there's so much out there now mm-hmm. that you have to wade through so much. That doesn't make it, that, that doesn't mean I think that it's bad. It just doesn't strike me or it just doesn't move me so it's a little more difficult but then when I start thinking back on it I think well you're pushing those buttons like crazy because you didn't like what a lot of it was there so you were still looking for the thing you like I'm not sure that that's changed very much but I do agree coming across new music or a new artist that moves you is incredibly exciting mm-hmm. and um, just lights up I just light up when something like that happens. My last question is something completely different. Tell me about your love of baseball. Ah, baseball both represents myself as a kid. Were you a player? I played little league. I was never a uh, high school athlete or any of that stuff. But I loved to play the game, and I would stand in my side yard and throw a tennis ball against the wall for hours catching it the neighborhood kids would gather up and we would play baseball or wiffle ball or whatever it is so for one thing it puts me in touch with who I once was like that the other another reason is 
there's such a continuum in history about it. So you see a modern, a great young modern day ball player, and he reminds you of someone that you saw originally 40 years ago. And so all of a sudden now, you're not only connected to what the present is, but you're connected to what the past was. And I find, I find that kind of connection really meaningful in life. And as you get older, I think it's harder and harder to find some of those connections. First of all, some of that stuff gets left way behind. Luckily in baseball, the game is basically the same game that I grew up watching. Oh yeah, it's changed. Starters don't stay in the game as yeah. long and the, those little nuances, but it's still nine guys, one guy pitching, one guy hitting, and so is all that. And then um, I, you're, I'm a fan of, you pick a team, you're a fan of them, and so you carry that all the way through. So um, it's an opportunity to be a kid all over again. To sit, when you're sitting in the stands and your, your team's playing and a great play or there's a home run or whatever, this excitement, this love, this just comes bubbling out, up, you're out of your seat, you're cheering, all of a sudden there are 30,000 people around you cheering, or you're at someone else's park and you're one of only seven people standing up cheering because you've just, but so to me, base that, you know, baseball puts me in touch with all that. Um, and I also appreciate that there's no timeline. Now, baseball's dealing with this issue, oh, the games yeah. take too long and all that. But I personally think that that's one of the best things about it. Football is 60 minutes. Basketball is 48 minutes, or if it's college, it's... But that's it. Baseball can literally go on for hours and hours and hours. It's sort of like life. You don't really know when it's going to end. You don't know how long it's going to be. What What are all these little things that are happening in between? But it is a continuum that, so all those things sort of, uh, and I just love, and I love going to baseball. And I still keep score like oh, I did do. as a little kid. And my, you know, a lot of people go, well, don't you miss plays because you're busy writing? I said, well, you sort of learned uh, one eye on the field, one eye writing down. And I still have some of those scoreboards and hold on to them for special games so that five years later I find the scoreboard for when so-and-so struck out 20 people and I open up the scoreboard and I'm back in the game. So all those things. And then my heroes were baseball players growing up. So now there's new baseball players to, to whether heroes is the right word because we're a little more jaded. And unfortunately I think we get too much information about people. Right. Sometimes I wish I didn't know who was divorced to who. And I didn't know there was so much about the police blotter about all these guys. I kind of would like the innocence as a kid, not knowing that Mickey Mantle was a carouser or whatever, that kind of stuff, because they, they didn't cover it. There are right. times when I think, man, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> Bill, thank you so much for doing this. It's always Michael, a pleasure talking to you. Before this all ends, I have to say this to you. I have to thank you for your commitment to spreading and letting people know about not just the music, but about the people in the music and allowing them to tell their own stories. Uh, in some ways, it's its own radio. You've created your own little radio place, but you do it so well 
and it is so important. I'm not sure what a hundred years from now is going to be, but hopefully somewhere this stuff is going to be stored and someone's going to stumble across it no matter how much society has changed and it's going to be able to relearn and continue that history. And so I have to say thank you for all you do. Well, thank you. You're, you're such a, <laughs> somebody I look up to so much, so I just, I'm totally so, moved by that. Thank you. It's all good. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. Thank you.